Over the past two weeks, we've been looking at the very first days of the church. The disciples who have walked with Jesus, who have learned from Jesus, been shaped by Jesus, have seen Jesus die and rise to life, are now sent on, on mission for Jesus. And we've seen how the life of the early church was devoted to certain things. Two weeks ago, Larry preached on what it means to be devoted to the, the apostles' teaching. We, like them, are to be a people committed to God's Word. And then last week, Larry laid out our call to be devoted to, to fellowship. We are to share our lives with one another. Next week, Larry's going to talk about devotion to the outward nature of, nature of our mission. But this week, we're going to look at the inward nature of our life together. This week, we're going to look at what Acts 2.42 describes as the, the breaking of bread and the prayers. As the church, we are to be devoted to life together. Devoted to life together. Now, while Acts 2 presents us with a, a vivid picture of what the beginning of the church looked like, it doesn't prescribe anything. It doesn't say, this is how the church must be. It only shows us what these days look like. So in order to get a deeper sense of the, the concepts of the breaking of bread and prayers, we're going to be looking at a, a different section of God's Word together this morning. And this section of God's Word lays out for us what it looks like to be devoted to life together. So please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The same Peter who walked with Christ, the, the outspoken, bold, and confident Peter, the Peter who denies Christ three times. The, the Peter whom Jesus commissions to feed his sheep. The Peter who preaches Christ as the Messiah in Acts 1. This Peter writes a letter around 30 years after Pentecost to a group of churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. Peter writes to these churches to tell them what their lives should look like. Peter writes to tell them what they should expect and what should characterize their lives as they live before God and with one another. Peter writes to a group of Christians out of care for them. Peter gives, us, gives much of his letter to preparing this people for, for suffering and for persecution. You can hear echoes of, of Jesus' farewell discourse in the words of Peter. He wants them to know that they, they will suffer. And he wants them to know how they're to live in the face of this suffering. Peter writes to say that their position in the world is, is unique. They are Elect exiles is what Peter refers to them as in verse 1 of 1 Peter. They are sojourners and exiles. They are unique because where they live is not their home. They are made for someplace else. But God doesn't use Peter just to show this group of Christians in their unique situation and time how to live. God in His infinite wisdom and grace uses Peter to write to us in our unique time and station. It may be hard to conceive that we have much in common with, with this group of Christian, who, Christians who's, who lived nearly 2,000 years ago, over 5,000 miles away from where we sit. But we both live at the same point in salvation history. We both live on, on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, on this side of Pentecost. We live in the already of the long-awaited Messiah. He has come. The anointed one has come. Our only hope for salvation has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has delivered us from separation from God, from eternal death. But we live during the not yet of Christ's return. We live in the not yet of eternal peace, of eternal rest, of eternal reign in the kingdom of heaven. 
We are still waiting for our blessed hope to appear. We are still waiting for the day when our faith will be turned to sight. When our hope will be fully realized in the grace that will be brought to us. When we partake fully of the inheritance that is, as Peter says, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. We are not made for this world. And we are not called to live for this world either. We live like these first century Christians as sojourners and exiles. We live as, as travelers passing through this world onto our heavenly home. We are a people who in this time are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So then, how are we to live? Let's turn together to God's Word as we look at 1 Peter 4, verses 7-11. through 11. This is the Word of God. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How are we to live when the end of all things is at hand? Simply, we are to glorify Jesus Christ by being devoted to life together. We're to glorify Jesus Christ by being devoted to life together. Peter begins by, by pointing the time that we live in as the reason for living in this way. These are the last days. The end of all things is at hand, is what Peter says in verse 7. Because these are the last days, because we are waiting for the appearing of our hope, live then in this way. We're going to look together this morning at, at three aspects that, that Peter gives us for our life together. Three explanations of, of how our lives should look as this group of sojourners and exiles. Three prescriptions for our life together as a church. So number one, in verse 7, Peter tells us to be a praying people. We're to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. We're to be a praying people. Since the end of all things is here, since these are the last days, give yourselves to prayer. Be a praying people. Peter begins by pastorally guiding our mindset as a praying people. We are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And these words are really, they're really synonymous, indicating that we should act rationally and with with restraint. We are to be clear-minded and have sound judgment with a sober spirit. We are to watch and we are to pray. When the world faces the last days, it goes nuts. The craziness tends to happen in one of two directions. Either it gives itself to irrational religious fervor, and we see this at the extreme end in cults, which lead to mass casualties and, and death. Or they lead to irrational and reckless lifestyles. The world is going to end, so let's knock a few off your bucket list. Let's go party. The world's ending. This comes up again and again throughout human history. This morning I was actually looking on Wikipedia, that, that bastion of di- digital knowledge and truth, and it listed 150 predicted dates that the world was going to end. And we're still here. 
half of which of those were predicted in just the last hundred years. Many of us probably remember 88 reasons why the rapture is going to happen in 88, or Y2K, or even just a few years ago, the Mayan apocalypse. Wikipedia has this page because despite these predictions, we're still here. The world hasn't ended. The Mayan, Mayan apocalypse, which, which held that on December 21st, 2012, the world was going to end. Leading up to that day, REM has a song, It's the End of the World and We Know It, and I Feel Fine. Sales for that song went up 600% leading up to December 21st, 2012. There was one celebrity couple who confessed in early 2013 that they were on the verge of bankruptcy because they had spent all of their money thinking the world was about to end. This is what the guy acknowledged in an interview. He said, we made and spent at least $10 million. The thing is, we heard that the planet was going to end in 2012. We thought, we have got to spend this money before the asteroid hits. Here's some advice. Definitely do not spend your money thinking asteroids are coming, because the world didn't end. Then he added, I would give my friends $15,000 for their birthday, just cash. I would buy people cars. Every valet I met got on a, a couple hundred dollar tip. I would pay people $200 just to open doors for us. When the end of all things is at hand, our human bent is crazy. Our human bent is craziness. But for us as sojourners and exiles, as the church, we're called to something else. Instead of giving ourselves to what seems right in our own eyes, in light of the end, we are to give ourselves to God. We are to give ourselves to life together. We're, we're called to be self-controlled and, and sober-minded. Why? For our prayers. We're called to be self-controlled and sober-minded for our prayers. Tom Schreiner, a, a theologian and scholar, a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says this, The realization that God is bringing history to a close should provoke believers to depend on him. And this dependence is manifested in prayer. For in prayer, believers recognize that any good that occurs in the world is due to God's grace. Prayer, unlike anything else we do, embodies humility. It acknowledges that we are, we are dependent on God for grace, for fruit, for help. To pray is to say that we are, we are submitted to God and we depend on God. Prayer says, God, I trust you to handle the situations and circumstances of my life. I trust you with my life. When life gets crazy for you, do you pray? When you looked at your email on Friday afternoon before you left the office, were you overwhelmed at having to start another week behind? Did you pray? When, when you're just trying to put the dishes away from the dishwasher and your toddler pulls more out from the cabinet than you can put into the cabinet, do you pray? When you reach your end and you feel like you just can't face another day, do you pray? As a church, when we live in times that are increasingly confused, when we see brothers and sisters struggle to find hope in God, when, when we see people lose their confidence and grounding in Scripture and obedience, do you pray? Do you pray for one another, for our protection, for the church's protection and gospel proclamation? Do you pray? Peter says, these are the last days, so pray. There's a saying attributed to Martin Luther where he says this, I have so much to do that if I didn't spend at least three hours a day in prayer, I would never get it all done. Is this your mentality? Is this your mindset? Do you respond to the pressures of life and all that you have to do by praying or by doing? We can try to do more, but that's never going to cut it. I heard one pastor recently say, when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. My temptation, my temptation can be to throw myself into doing more. 
If I could only read a little bit more in preparing for this sermon or, or squeeze a couple more hours into the day, maybe get up a little bit early, may, may earlier, maybe stay up a little bit later, then I'd be able to get ahead. Then I'd be in a good place. Other times, I can be so overwhelmed by keeping the plates of my life spinning that I just want to stop and eat ice cream. <laughs> I, I'm sitting there and it's, I'm not going to get it done. Still, let me go see what's in the freezer. Let me go check out the fridge, see, see what leftovers we have. Let me see what's in the pantry. Maybe for you, you go to the next movie or go to a TV series on Netflix or something. Maybe you go to your, your phone and to social media and just the constant state of connectedness that we have through Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and whatever else there is. Maybe you just go to the news. I can't handle my problems. Let me see what other problems people have. Maybe when you have so much to do, you just want to unplug and forget it all. You just want to escape reality. But that's not what God calls us to do. God doesn't call us to throw ourselves into what is right in our eyes. When the pressure comes, when life is more than we can handle, even when we think we have a handle on it, we are called to be self-controlled. We are called to be sober-minded so that we can pray. Pastor in Jacksonville, H.B. Charles Jr. puts it this way, There are a lot of things you can do to fix your situation after you pray, but there is nothing you can do to fix the situation until you pray. Whatever it is you need God to do in your life, it happens after prayer. It happens after prayer. Prayer is a discipline, and prayer takes work. But the work of prayer, it's always worth it. Because there is a God overall. There's a God overall who graciously hears our prayers. Our God tells us to pray, and He he answers our prayers. It may not be the answer we expect or when we want it. But get this, his, his answers to our prayers are always better than our answers without prayer or our own answers to our prayer. His answers are always better. So as the church in these, in these last days, let us be a praying church. There's nothing more worthwhile that we can be doing. We're a bunch of ordinary people. Ordinary people, but we serve an extraordinary God. And this extraordinary God, He does extraordinary supernatural things. And these extraordinary supernatural acts, the saving of souls, the building of the church, the growing of disciples, they all happen after prayer. They all happen after prayer. The church that prays together is a church that grows together. Grace Church, let's continue to lean forward and be a praying church. We cannot overemphasize the importance of prayer. Derek Thomas says this, hardly anything is more important as a sign of the church's vitality than its commitment to prayer. Hardly anything is more important as a sign of the church's vitality than its commitment to prayer. Let us be a praying people. Let us be a people that are self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Let us be given to to frequent and fervent prayer. Because of the age that we live in, because the end of all things is at hand, we are to first be a praying people, and second... We're to be a loving people. Be a loving people. We are to be a people marked by love. And this love is, is specifically, though not exclusively, but specifically for one another. Peter writes in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Other translations phrase this, Maintain an intense love. Keep fervent in your love. We are to be a people deeply committed to loving one another. The word used here implies a depth and a, a stretching of our lives, in our, in our, of our love and its earnestness. 
We're to keep loving one another. Peter move, moves quickly to the, the why of this love. See what he says there at the second half of verse 8. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We're to love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love is the glue that holds a broken people together. The church is frictionful, not frictionless. The church is frictionful. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news this morning, but this room is full of sinful people. People that will disappoint you and people that will let you down. But this isn't a cause to leave the church. This is a cause to love the church. When Peter asked Jesus how many times he should forgive his brother, Peter seeks to to stretch himself, going above and beyond what anybody would rationally expect. Seven times, Lord? Seven times should I forgive my brother? Jesus is not impressed by Peter's view of abundant grace. Jesus is not impressed. The love that God shows us, the love that we are called to, goes far beyond seven times. Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. God's love shatters our stinginess. Jesus tells Peter, not not seven times, 70 times seven. You don't have categories for the love that I have shown you that you were called to show other people. The late theologian Edmund Clowney says this, the love of the saints keeps stretching in both depth, in both depth and endurance to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. It is the reach of God's love that stretches our love. It's the reach of God's love that stretches our love. We must be stretched by this call to love others because God has shown love to us. And not just in some abstract sense do we love one another. It can be easy to talk about loving one another, talk about being a loving people without ever loving the people in this room, without ever doing anything about it. While God certainly calls us to show love to all people, to our enemies, to those outside of the church, Peter here is calling us to love the people in the church. We are to love those sitting right here, right now, in this room. The relationship that we have in the church, the relationships that we have in the church, they're going to tempt us. They're going to to tempt us to want to give up, to not endure, to not keep on in love for one another. We want to put a limit on the and cap on the grace we extend to others in this new family. But look to the love of God. Look to the love that He shows us. Paul writes that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this very letter, Peter writes in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, He Himself, He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There is no one who deserves the love of God less than straying sheep, than sinful people. But He loves us. And because of His love for us, we are to love others. So when your your brother or sister sins against you, you have the opportunity to reflect the love of God to them. You have the opportunity to extend grace and mercy to them. You have the chance to bring something otherworldly, a supernatural grace into your relationships. This quote has, has served me immensely over the past few years. Author Bill Smith says this, 
When others are good to me, there is no need for me to extend grace to them. They need grace for me only when they're out of line. That means the only context that anyone will ever have, the only context that anyone will ever have for experiencing grace for me is when he is in need of it. So if you want to be a gracious, grace-filled person, expect to be sinned against. Otherwise, there's no need for love to cover a multitude of sins. Our expectation as the church is to be sinned against. But our disposition as the church is to love one another. In verse 9, Peter goes on to describe a way in which we embody this love for one another. This forgiving, this forbearing love. What is the key to it? Verse 9 says, show hospitality. Show hospitality. The church is to be a hospitable people. In New Testament times, hospitality was critical to the continued growth of the church. We regularly hear of accounts throughout the New Testament of homes being opened up for Paul and for for Peter and for Barnabas and for others. There weren't hotels or hostels or credit cards. Their options were limited. And the alternatives were dangerous. Hospitality had to happen. Hospitality in the early church, it was a necessity. But just because our circumstances are different today doesn't make hospitality any less significant for us. These are still the last days. The end of all things is at hand. And this is still the Word of God. And a primary way we show love for one another is by showing hospitality. Through having people into our homes. Breaking bread with one another. Eating together. Living life together. Biblical hospitality, it identifies us as God's family. It's in the context of hospitality that we embody this family. Having someone into your home, welcoming them with joy. That's what God calls us to. It reasserts that we are the family of God because we are the church. We show hospitality to one another. Now, notice what Peter leaves out of this verse. Notice the qualifications that Peter does does not put on this call to hospitality. Peter doesn't say, show hospitality if you're not too busy. Peter does not say, show hospitality if your house is big enough. Peter doesn't say, show hospitality only if you're a good cook. Peter doesn't say, show hospitality if your rooms are decorated right, or if you finally finish that one project that now, all right, now we can have people over. No, Peter doesn't say, show hospitality only to your, your good friends, or those people in the same season of life as you, or those people that are married, or those people that are single, or those people that have kids your age. Peter doesn't say any of that. He just says, show hospitality. It's possible to check off all of the boxes that we have for what it takes to be good at hospitality and still not be hospitable. It's possible to be the best at entertaining and still not be hospitable. It's also possible to not fit any of the typical hospitality boxes that we have, these hospitality categories that we have, and still be hospitable. Hospitality, it's about our hearts. It's about the disposition of our hearts. We are to show hospitality without grumbling, without complaining, with hearts of joy. At Grace Church, we we really face the test of prosperity in this. We are surrounded by people who wonderfully show hospitality. I mean, I think of of Paul and Lauren Rohr and Danny and Rima Sutton and Larry and Stephanie Wetchie and Chris and Jean Mays and Larry and Marilyn Malament and just the way they bring people in their homes and they love people and they welcome people and they honor people. And there are so many other people in this church that do that as well. But let me encourage you not to think of this as a call to other people in this room. 
This is a call to, to you where you are at in whatever unique situation you're in. Don't think, well, that's not really my gift. Or my situation's not quite right. Or where we live is too small or it's too far. Or we're just too busy. We can't do that. Don't give in to those excuses. Show hospitality in whatever situation you find yourself. Author Trillian Newbell says, Opening your home may seem like a major undertaking, but it's a small thanks to the Lord who gave everything to live among us and die on the cross in our place. We show hospitality with hearts of gratefulness and we show hospitality with hearts of joy. Our hospitality and our breaking of bread with one another, it's not about a group of people getting together who share common interests. It's not about eating the best food or having the most fun. Those things are fine. That's not what our hospitality is about. Our getting together reflects who we are as God's family, who we are in Christ, who we are as a family in Christ. The church is filled with those who once were far off, strangers, without hope and without God in the world. But we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ, we are a new family. In Christ, we have a new identity. And when we gather together and when we show hospitality, we put on display the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Hospitality puts on display the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. We love because He loved us. But there's one other thing we should note here about hospitality. Biblical hospitality identifies us as God's family, but it also looks forward. Biblical hospitality looks forward forward. We're not just getting together to eat. We're to show hospitality because the end of all things is at hand. Our response these last days could easily be to be less hospitable, not more. We recently faced this this temptation when we were moving from from Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky eight months ago. As our time there came to an end, it took a lot more work and intentionality to open up our home. The end of our time in Louisville, it was at hand. It was easier to think, well, we won't be here much longer, or we're so busy with packing. But God helps us to press through. And what we found was in those, in those final days, we experienced some of the sweetest fellowship that we did in our, in our entire time in Louisville. Much of that had to do with how our fellowship was reoriented during that time. Our priority wasn't entertainment. We weren't driven by everything being just right, the house being perfectly clean. We were moving. We were packing. It was a mess. We weren't concerned with having the right activities planned or how busy it might make the week. We just wanted to be with people. We were going to be leaving. We wanted to be with people. We wanted to show love and care and appreciation. The priorities in our hospitality, they were, they were reshaped because of our circumstances. We were going to be moving. The end of our time in Louisville was at hand. It wasn't time for isolation, but time for community and family. And such should be the, light, the life of the church on this side of the end of all things, on this side of the eschaton. The end of all things is at hand, so show hospitality. As sojourners getting ready for a greater and better meal, show hospitality. Tim Chester, a pastor in the UK, says this, when your church family gathers together as a group of needy people and shares food with Jesus at the center and with Jesus as the provider, you glimpse God's coming world right here, right now. The Christian community is the beginning and sign of God's coming world, and no more so than when we eat together. 
Our meals are a foretaste of the future messianic banquet. The call to us is the same today as it was then. Show hospitality. But we show it with joy. We show it with expectation, full of grace and mercy, without grumbling. We show hospitality because the end of all things is at hand. We show hospitality rooted in love because of our expectation of that coming faith, of that coming day when our faith will be turned to sight. We anticipate that feast. That's why we show hospitality. Peter calls us to something else as well. We're to be a praying people. We're to be a loving people. And third, we are to be a serving people. We are to serve one another with our gifts. God in His grace gives gifts to His children. Each of us has received spiritual gifts from God. Now, Peter here, he doesn't provide a list of gifts. But he says simply in verse 10 that we are to be good stewards of God's varied grace. We are to be stewards of God's grace in its many forms. Now, if you're hoping to find an exhaustive list of, oh, well, these are the spiritual gifts. Let me see what I got. You're not going to find it in Scripture. Peter is pointing out that God's grace is far too wide and far too deep and glorious for us to say that God gave us one of these five or ten gifts. His grace goes beyond what we can fathom. I was recently in Orlando and I was doing a seminar on, on why music, why does it matter what we play? And I've been thinking about just the glory of God that's seen in His generous grace, His grace in various forms. And so when it comes to music, at one time there was a first instrument. There was a note that was played for the first time. But God didn't say, all right, that's enough. Like, that's all we need. No. Throughout time and in different cultures and throughout history, He has given us different expressions of His grace through music. He has given us new instruments, new sounds, new ways to exalt His name and show something of His glory. God's, God's glory isn't contained in just one instrument or one musical sound. Just like God's glory is not contained in one set of gifts. God's gifts are various and manifold. And we are, we, Peter is not concerned, God is not concerned that we won't know, oh, what are my gifts? I don't know if I have any. No, God, you have gifts if you are in Christ. We're called to be stewards of these gifts of grace. These gifts aren't ours, and they're not about us. We're stewards. We're looking after them. And there is a way that we are called to use them. We use them to, to serve others. Our gifts, they're not about making us look great. They're not to get people to see us and to notice us. They are to love one another. Our gifts are to serve one another. Tom Schreiner says this, the term serving can be used in a variety of ways, of providing meals, of visiting those in prison, of providing financial support, and in more general terms as well. The point is that spiritual gifts are given to serve and to help others, to strengthen others in the faith. Romans 13, another familiar passage on, or Romans 12, another familiar passage on hospitality says this in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's through, through our hospitality, through our serving, through our love that we, we contribute to the needs of the saints. We serve others. That's why what we're called to do as stewards of God's good gifts. This is how we become stewards of God's grace. We have a responsibility before God to use these gifts well. Now Peter broadly groups these gifts into two categories in verse 11. 
I love how all-encompassing what he does is. It's everything you say and everything you do. For whoever speaks, we're to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Now this is an odd-sounding phrase, and this is the only place in Scripture it comes up. Oracles of God. But it's not that complicated. As one who speaks the oracles of God is, is one who speaks the words of God. And thanks to be to God, we have His words right here in the Bible. We love one another by echoing the Word of God to one another. All Scripture is breathed out by God and, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. God's Word is good for us. It's, it meets our needs. It serves us. And when we speak God's Word to one another, we give each other what we need. We don't need to wait around for something else, some other oracles, some other words to love one another and serve one another and build one another up. There isn't other, some other special revelation that we are called to speak to one another. God gives us what we need right here in His Word. In order to build one another up in our words, we want to be a Bible-bleeding people. When the circumstances of life and the, the friction of relationships, when they, when they prick us, we want Bible to come out. And in order to do this, we must prioritize Bible intake. We must be creatures of the Word. We, we want to give ourselves to reading God's Word. We give ourselves to meditating on God's Word. We give ourselves to memorizing God's Word. We give ourselves to praying through God's Word. Just like a, a child develops vocabulary by hearing other people talk, we want to develop our vocabulary by hearing God talk in His Word. God's Word is the only Word that gives life. God's Word is the only Word that takes dead things and brings them to life. God's Word is active and living and sharper than two-edged sword. God's Word gets it done. So let's speak God's Word to one another. Let's be a people who speak God's Word to one another. Those who speak, speak the words of God. And those who serve, serve in the strength of God. We don't do what we do, love, serve, show hospitality in our own strength, but in the strength that God supplies. When we work in our own strength, we will run ourselves ragged. We will get burnt out. We will get weary. But when we use the strength that God supplies, when we draw from the well that never runs dry, God is the one that gets the glory. The focus isn't on us when we work in God's strength. It's not on what we're doing, but on the giver of gifts, on the provider of all that we need. And that's where Peter ends. That's what this is all about. This is how we are to live in these last days, so that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In everything, how we think, in being self-controlled and, and sober-minded so that we can pray. In how we live, loving one another, forgiving one another, showing hospitality to one another, in how we talk, speaking the words of God to one another, in how we walk, serving one another with God's strength. We are devoted to this life together for a reason. And we see this reason right here. And we see this reason all throughout Scripture. We saw it recently looking at John. It's about the glory of Jesus by which God is most 
glorified. We glorify Jesus Christ by being devoted to life together. By being the church, we glorify Jesus Christ. By living in light of the love that He has shown us. When we were dead in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Because of this grace He extends to us, we extend it to others, and we glorify God through it. Here is the key to life and happiness, to eternal joy and peace. It's not in living for yourself. It's not in doing what's right in your eyes. It's not in your comfort, your desires being met, the stuff you want, the places you want to go, the things you want to do. True life, everlasting life, eternal joy and peace is found in living for the glory of Christ. There is no one more worthy to be praised. We gather as God's people, not for the camaraderie and the experience, not because it gives us good feelings, and as as wonderful and beneficial as it is to be a community, we gather because our eyes are fixed on the one who has bought us by his blood. We gather not for the experience, but for the object of our praise. In these last days, we live in light of our grace, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is what he's doing in our life together. This is what he does in us as we devote ourselves to life together. This is what he has done, and this is what he continues to do through the church. We are devoted to life together, not because of the experience of life together, but because of the object that brings us together. We've been saved to the praise of something far greater than anything we can imagine for ourselves. Because our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again, because of the rich and manifold and immeasurable grace He has poured out on us. We are now, as, as Peter writes, just two pages over, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And this is why. This is why we are this people. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now, you, you, the people in this room, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Peter ends where we will end, to him. To him alone belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I pray that we would be captivated by the love that you've shown us through Jesus Christ. And because of the the love that you've shown us and because of the time that we live in, we would give ourselves to, to prayer, that we would be a praying people, that we would love one another selflessly and sacrificially, that we would show hospitality, that we would serve one another by speaking the gifts of God and meeting the needs of others. Lord, we do this in view of your mercy and your grace. We do this in view of the last days. We do this knowing that you are coming back. Soon and very soon our faith will be turned to sight. We eagerly anticipate that day when all things will be made right. All things will be made new. And until that day, Lord, we we live for you. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.